0: It's been 175 years since the beginning of the Great Famine. Starting tomorrow evening, the history of Gorta Moor will be comprehensively told in a new two-part documentary on RTE1 television. It's called The Hunger, the story of the Irish Famine, and part one airs tomorrow night at 25 minutes to 10. I'm joined now by Professor Peter Gray of Queen's University Belfast. He's one of the contributors to that documentary series. Peter, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show.
1: Thanks very much, Miles.
0: Now, one of the things that the documentary does is put the Great Famine into an international context, which is not something that we see very often. The deadly fungus, obviously, that caused the potatoes to rot came from South America, crossed the Atlantic in cargo ships and infected potato crops not just in Ireland, but throughout Europe in 1845. But, Peter, how did other countries in Europe respond to the uh, blight rather more efficiently than it was the case in Ireland.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a number of countries in Europe that also have agricultural areas that are are heavily dependent on potato subsistence. Flanders in Belgium, large parts of the north of France, Silesia in what is now Poland, Galicia as well in, in, in southern Poland parts of Central Europe. You know, so the governing authorities in all these states are faced with a similar crisis. How to feed their people, given that the cheapest subsistence food has disappeared with this mysterious disease that that no one can understand. So, you know, different states respond in different ways, but there's a lot of attention paid uh, both by Irish observers and also uh, actually by the British government, whose diplomats are reporting back, uh, specifically on what Belgium and France are doing. Belgium is, is particularly heavily hit uh, because that's where the blight is first observed uh, on the continent in the early summer of 1845. And Belgium responds quite quickly in um, closing its ports and in, in preventing the export of grain within the country and also acting to uh, on use state money to purchase food from overseas to, to import it into the country and then also to, to use um, resources to set up public works and feeding stations and things like that. And th- there seems it seems to be quite a high priority uh, within the Belgian government to be seen to be addressing this question effectively. And it, it, it's kind of, um, you know, the opposition in Belgium is pushing for more relief, you know, rather than criticising the government for, for doing too much, as to some extent is the case in, in Britain. So, yeah, so we see countries, uh, you know, the French government also um, to a lesser degree, but uh, adopts similar policies. Not all countries do it, you know, um, the Netherlands, for example, is, is quite similar to, to Britain in its reliance on, on free trade and laissez faire. But it's, it's Belgium that really, I think, attracts the attention of Irish observers like, you know, Daniel O'Connell and, and also the, the young Irelanders who, who write about it in their newspapers.
0: Now, it seems to be of much shorter duration, the crisis, in the rest of Europe, because the famine obviously goes on for much longer in Ireland. Arguably, its effects last until the the middle of the 1850s, and I suppose, uh, you know, culturally well beyond. But the duration of the famine in Ireland is primarily, I think, due to Irish weather, isn't it?
1: It is Ireland's extremely unfortunate in terms of the the combination of this new disease and the the climatic conditions that allow it to propagate and to extend itself over a number of different harvest seasons. The blight, the um, the fungal type infestation of the blight, really thrives in mild. Damp summers. Uh, it loves, you know, that, that's when the crops are coming into their full growth and the tubers are forming. If you get, you know, damp and, and kind of mild, warmish summers, which Ireland is prone to, that really sees the, this uh, fungal type infestation propagate. Spores are then released onto the wind and they spread throughout fields. So, in many parts of the continent, the following years uh, in 1846, especially 1847, the, the summers are very dry. And then you've got harsh, quite cold winters as well. Both of these things pre- really prevent the, the disease from replicating itself to the same degree that we get in Ireland. So what we get in Ireland, obviously, in 1846, is, is an even worse, a much worse outbreak of the potato blight than in the previous year, You know, destroying probably upwards of nine-tenths of all the, the potato crops in Ireland. And then, uh, while well, it doesn't come back in 1847, uh, for similar reasons as in the continent. There's no seed planted in 1847, which means that there's, there's virtually no harvest. And then the disease go, does come back in Ireland, particularly in the western half of the country in 1848 and 1849, and then kind of more localised, sporadic ways in the subsequent years. So it's this you know, building crisis that continues year after year in Ireland that makes this such a devastating event.
0: Now, the famine ultimately kills one in eight people living on this island, and obviously it has knock-on effects in terms of emigration, but the death rate alone makes it one of the most catastrophic famines in global history. When it first strikes in 1845, to some extent Ireland is fortunate in the British Prime Minister at the time, and that's Sir Robert Peel, one of the only positives, I suppose, in political terms from that point of view, or from an Irish point of view anyway. Tell us about his reaction to the crisis.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's a degree of truth in that. I mean, obviously, the, the first year, starting in 1845, running through to the middle of 1846, there's only a partial potato failure. The peasantry, generally, in many cases, have something to pawn or something to sell to help get them through that year. But the government does seem to be more pragmatic uh, in responding in that first year than we see later on. Peel has got lots of experience of, of governing Ireland. He'd been chief secretary back in the 1810s home secretary with responsibility for dealing with the 1822 famine as well so he you know he he knows what's going to happen he's also under a lot of political pressure from daniel o'connell to act quickly you know to prevent this becoming a big political issue for for the o'connellites so what peel does is There's a number of public actions and also a kind of more covert action. Covert action is to secretly buy a certain amount of grain, £100,000 worth of Indian meal, which is the cheapest grain on the market in New York. With uh, treasury money, money, and to bring that across to Ireland, put it into depots in the west, and then release that uh, throughout the following year uh, to try and keep the price of food down. It's not feeding everyone, but it's regulating the prices. That's quite an important intervention. It's not replicated later on at all during the famine. Second thing he does is quite quickly, in the course of the early months of eighteen forty-six, to get uh, public works relief set up and operating, and with relatively generous finance, with a, a number of grants as, as well as, as loans. And this is to, essentially to put uh, the unemployed, the unemployed laboring population, to work, to give them some income, to buy the food which then they'll, they'll be able to get in the markets, ideally, uh, you know, with assistance from this imported food. So it's kind of a, a coherent strategy. There are certain things he's not prepared to do. He's not prepared to do what the Belgians are doing and what many of the nationalists are calling for, to ban food exports, but prefers to try and encourage imports coming into Ireland. And to do that, he connects the crisis to probably you know, his most, his most famous political action, which is to repeal the corn laws, to, to lift the taxes on importation.
0: Yes, in relation to the repeal of the Corn Laws, that's something that happens then in 1846. And it was one of, you know, it's a kind of a Brexit type moment, in a sense, in uh, British politics causes the disruption, the, the, the splitting of the Conservative Party of Peel. Does that happen because of what's taking place in Ireland or is what's taking place in Ireland a pretext which causes the repeal of the Corn Laws?
1: I think it's a bit of both. If we think about what the Corn Laws do, they essentially these are laws passed in 1815 which impose a tariff a taxation on the import of grain coming into Britain and Ireland. And what that means, of course, is that they, they push, the, and they're deliberately meant to push the cost of food up to try and ensure bigger profits and, and therefore higher rents for commercial farmers and for landlords. A history show they're very Maz unpopular Dungan with all classes Radio you know, 1. They, they mean high food prices but also with the British industrial middle classes because it means they're having to pay higher wages they're also very much against uh, liberal economic theory, against uh, political economic ideas, going back to Adam Smith. So uh, I think Peel, like, like many uh, liberal economic thinkers, and politicians have been opposed to the continuation of these in the long run, but there had been a lot of political resistance to doing any, anything about them. So Ireland, the Irish crisis creates the opportunity, there's no question about that, but it, there's also a clear rationale Uh, relating to Ireland as well. Uh, It's not just Peel arguing that repealing the Corn Laws will will bring the cost of food down in Ireland. O'Connell is doing that um, as well, very clearly. He's exactly on the same page, as indeed is the British Whig Liberal Party. So there's a consensus that this is going to be beneficial to Ireland, but in the long run, of course, it means quite a shift in the kind of economic balance of, of British policy and in the short term a split in Peel's governing Conservative Party which means that his government collapses in the uh, summer of 1846.
0: And is replaced by a Liberal administration led by John Russell and he presides over the worst years of the famine. Why was his government's response such a disaster? It's a disaster from the Irish point of view obviously.
1: Yes, yeah, I don't think there's any question that it is a disaster. This is quite a, a weak government under a weak prime minister. It doesn't have a majority in parliament. It has got a lot of kind of competing factions uh, within it. I think the dominant faction is one which is... We would now describe perhaps as neoliberal in its ideology then, it was just kind of simple, simply liberal, which is preoccupied with the idea that the famine is, well first of all, some kind of, of divinely ordained event sent for a purpose, and secondly that purpose should be the reconstruction of Irish society and the, the reconstruction of Irish behaviour. Both landlord behaviour and peasant behaviour to force people to help themselves. So that this idea that the correct response to the famine is one of, of self-help and the state should do only the minimum required to promote that or to enforce that becomes, if you like, the dominant dogma. And you can see that very much in the the defence of government policy written by Charles Trevelyan, the assistant secretary to the Treasury, which is published uh, at the start of 1848. He makes those arguments very clearly indeed.
0: Now Trevelyan is about as popular in Ireland as Oliver Cromwell. He's been demonised for his uh, prognostications, his statements, his philosophy and his actions during the uh, period of the famine. Things like uh, declaring the famine is over in 1847, closing soup kitchens. Is that uh, demonisation justified?
1: Well Trevelyan's a civil servant but he's very much the public face of the government in terms of of, uh, famine relief. It's his name that appears in all the the public correspondence and in reports in the newspapers and of course he publishes this defence. Of the government's policy in 1848, um, but behind him, of course, there were ministers, um, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer Charles Wood, um, a number of other ministers like like Lord Grey, for example, who are pushing very similar policies. And even you know, they're they're the you know responsible the responsible members of the cabinet. But beyond them, there's also a large segment of British public opinion, you know, represented by newspapers like the Times, for example, which is also pushing. For this policy of minimal state spending and forcing the Irish to help themselves, avoiding moral hazard, you know, the danger of creating the dependency culture, as we would call it now, and also blaming the landlords, blaming the Irish landlords as a class for causing this crisis in the first place and trying to transfer the costs of relief very much onto them.
0: Now, there is a notion that Ulster was untouched by all this. You're you're speaking to me from Belfast at the moment. Was that true?
1: No, I mean, the famine is a national phenomenon. It affects every part of the island in one way or another. Every part of the island has got poor people who are um, dependent on potatoes. But, of course, the the intensity of suffering does vary from from place to place. The western seaboard, by far, is is the worst hit part of the country. But upland, poor quality land, mountainous land, you know, there's lots of that in in West Ulster. There's lots of Economically depressed countryside in South Ulster, where the uh, cottage linen industry is collapsing. People are, are, have got very low incomes as a consequence. These are also really badly hit areas. And, it's, and people move as well, of course. I mean, one of the survival strategies that the rural poor adopt is to get out of the places where there is no, no where the public works have been closed down or, or fever epidemics are running rampant, the workhouses are, are, are full up, to try and go where there might be work or there might be charity, or there might be the opportunity to get off the island uh, in an immigrant ship. So people walk to the urban centres to Dublin, but also to Belfast and to Derry, and they come through other urban centres. I mean, notoriously, there's a major uh, fever outbreak in, in Lurgan in County Armagh, you know, in the centre of the of the linen belt of the, um, you know, the industrialising area, and that is because, in part, there are these huge numbers of people on the roads, bringing the disease with them, and out of desperation, finding themselves, you know, in shanty towns or in workhouse accommodation, along the paths they're taking, towards the ports.
0: Now, photography was in its infancy at the time of the famine. Realistically, the images that we get of rural Ireland from the the 19th century more or less start in the 1860s and and, and even in the the 1870s. But there is still imagery, widespread imagery of the brutal reality of the famine, and these came from the drawings of the London Illustrated News, and uh, in particular the the Cork artist James Mahoney, who was actually hired to go to the Skibbereen area and draw what he saw. Are those very very stark, or are they stylized or as somebody even suggests in the in the programme, romanticised?
1: Yeah, Mahani is a classically trained artist. He's a portrait painter and landscape artist in, in Cork. Um, so, you know, I mean, he, he, the way he draws human forms and, and landscapes uh, for publication in the Illustrated London News reflects his training. Uh, there are other processes then involved, you know. Um, the, these sketches are sent to London. An editor makes a selection and then they're engraved. And at each of these stages, new modifications are made. The illustrated newspapers are really a very new phenomenon in the 1840s. The Illustrated London News has only been set up a few years earlier. There were a few rival ones also hiring artists to report uh, or to, and to draw sketches from the west of Ireland. So they're an important way in which the famine is visualised by people who aren't there themselves, you know, by, by English middle class and perhaps even some skilled working class readers Uh, who would see these weekly newspapers, either buy them or read them in reading rooms. And some of these images then also are are, are taken up by illustrated newspapers overseas as well, in continental Europe. Um, Certainly in, in, in the French illustrated press, the illustrated London news images are picked up. So they are very influential, but they're representations of a reality, obviously, rather than, you know, kind of photographic images.
0: Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to us. It's a very, very powerful series and uh, congratulations to Ruan McGann and the team involved in putting it together and rather counterintuitively given the content, it actually looks uh, extraordinarily uh, beautiful. So a beautifully produced two-part documentary that we've been uh, talking about and we've just covered a few aspects of this pivotal event in Irish history which is covered more comprehensively in the uh, two part documentary series. Professor Peter Gray, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening.
1: Thanks very much, Miles.
0: That documentary once again is called The Hunger, The Story of the Irish Famine. Part one airs tomorrow night on RTE One Television at 25 minutes to 10. Part two is the following Monday at the same time. And by the way, there's also a great series of articles and features on the famine up at the moment over at rte.ie forward slash history.